Well, this church has a long history. Going back to the 19th century, we were originally a part of the denomination known as the Presbyterian Church USA, short for the PC USA. And we were part of the PC USA until the 1940s when we left that denomination. You see, in the early part of the 20th century, the PC USA went through a crisis of faith. And this church had a faithful pastor. I can't remember his name, I've been told it. But he was not willing to go along with the gradual slide into apostasy that was happening among the churches of the PC USA. And one of the heroes of those dark days in the Protestant church is J. Gresham Machen. I've got his picture and the title of his most famous book on the screen for us this morning. Published in 1923, 100 years ago, the most important book that J. Gresham Machen wrote was titled Christianity and Liberalism. And as a topical sermon today, I would like to do a book review, a 100th anniversary book review of J. Gresham Machen's seminal work that really captures the essence of what is Christianity. And, as we'll see, Machen hopes to show what Christianity is by showing what it is not. And that's the thesis that he lays out at the beginning of his book, that theological liberalism, though it is called Christianity, is not actually Christianity. Though it uses many of the same terms and many of the same trappings as traditional Christianity, that what was happening in the split between those who were the theological liberals and those who were the traditionalists or the fundamentalists, as they were often called, was not just a matter of an in-house debate among Christians, but that it was actually a schism between different religions entirely. And I believe that his thesis is accurate, and we'll hope to show that this morning as we look at how he presented that in his book, Christianity and Liberalism. Now, the reason why this is such an important subject for us to discuss together as a church, you might wonder, why does a hundred-year-old book have to be a part of our Sunday morning services? The reason why this is so important, and I've chosen to address it this morning, is that the church, 100 years later, is facing the exact same, well, not the exact same, I don't want to overspeak, facing a very similar type of crisis of faith. And that when we study the lessons of the past, we can learn not to repeat the mistakes of the past, and we can also be encouraged by those who stood faithful in those previous generations. Because J. Gresham Machen is kind of a hero of mine in the faith. He's not a perfect man. He had his flaws. But much of what I preach has been filtered from J. Gresham Machen, who didn't come up with it. He got it from other men. But he stated it well, and he stood strong. And that has come down through the churches that I've grown up in and been a part of and, and really have formed my identity as a preacher. And so as we go through Machen's book this morning, you're going to see, oh, well, Machen was preaching this 100 years ago, and now Timothy's preaching it today. And, and it's nice to have that example before us that we can follow in the footsteps of faithfulness. The apostasy that faces the 21st century Christian church is the apostasy of postmodernism. The postmodernist takeover of the evangelical church is almost in full bloom, sadly to say. And this was the exact point that the church in Machen's day was at with its controversy over modernism. Modernism destroyed many denominations and churches in the 20th century. Postmodernism is destroying, in very similar fashion, many evangelical churches in the 21st century. And that's why this book is probably even more important today than it was when it was originally written. So, the thesis of the book, as I've said, liberalism is not Christianity. It's a different religion. It's irreconcilable with Christianity. And even though it has all the trappings of Christianity and presents itself as Christianity, it is outside of orthodoxy and no compromise is possible with this heresy. So, the first thing we need to do then is talk about what is modernism. Because, as I said, modernism was destroying the churches in the 20th century, as postmodernism is destroying the churches in the 21st century. But what is modernism? We'll take a look at that, and that's what Machen covers in his first chapter of his book. The introductory chapter is about the threat of liberalism or modernism in general. 
And then we'll take a look at chapters 2 through 7, which cover the differences between the theology of so-called Christian liberals and the theology of traditional evangelical biblical faith. So that's our outline for this morning. We'll start off here looking into what is modernism and why was it posing such a threat to civilization in the 20th century. Well, the occasion for this book is really as a response to a sermon preached by an enemy of the true gospel, Harry Emerson Fosdick. Perhaps you've heard the name. Harry Emerson Fosdick, in the early part of the 20th century, had one of the most popular radio ministries of its time. And on May 21st of 1922, Harry Emerson Fosdick preached a famous sermon, infamous in our circles, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? And the main idea in Fosdick's sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win?, is you can still be a Christian without believing everything that Christians have traditionally believed. And we can't let those fundamentalists who believe in all that traditional stuff win, or else we will lose the current generation, we'll lose the culture, because the culture has moved away from these traditional beliefs into modernistic beliefs, and so the church has to adapt It has to be like the culture around us in order to reach the culture around us. And does that sound familiar? That's exactly what the postmodernist Christians are saying today. That if we don't adapt, if we don't adjust the message to reach the culture, we're going to lose the next generation. Well, that was the gist of Harry Emerson Fosdick's sermon. And it was largely popularized by rich and powerful people, including the Rockefellers, who really liked Harry Emerson Fosdick. It's kind of like if Oprah supports you today. You know, your message gets out to so many people. Well, that was the rich and the powerful promoting Harry Emerson Fosdick back in his time. And so, this relatively young, at the point that he was writing, younger than I am, Princeton Theological Seminary professor takes up his pen to write against that sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win?, to show why it is essential that the fundamentalists do win and that the church does not become a modernist church. So with that introduction, now I want to talk about the tenets of modernism. What does modernism believe? Well, the key tenets of modernism that Machen puts forward, and I think is accurate, is that modernism is an unrestrained belief in human progress. This is known as progressivism. You've heard of progressives. Well, Progressivism is not new. It goes back to modernism and it's carried over into many postmodernist circles. And the progressivists, they believe that there's unlimited potential for perfecting humanity and human society through science, through natural discovery, through reason. And so this faith, based upon human goodness, sees that really the only evil in society is found in the bad systems. If we can just get rid of those bad systems, then we can have this utopia of a wonderful, peaceful, prosperous society like you see in Star Trek. Star Trek was written by Gene Roddenberry in the 1960s. This is uh, 40 years after this book that we're looking at this morning. So you see how modernism then came into popular culture and moved from the seminaries and the colleges and the intellectual world and became the dominant popular movement of the 20th century. Well, not only is modernism have an unrestrained belief in human goodness and the ability, therefore, for humans to progress, but it also is anti-supernatural. The anti-supernatural aspect of modernism is called naturalism. That they believe that the physical world is all there is, all there was, or all there ever will be, in the famous words of Carl Sagan. And when you look up naturalism in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it says it's the doctrine that scientific laws are adequate to account for all phenomena. So if scientific laws are adequate to account for all phenomena, well then what are we supposed to make of the miracles in the Bible? Did the Red Sea really part? How can you account for that according to the scientific laws of nature? Did Jesus Christ bodily raise from the dead? That is physically impossible to the modernist mind. And so the threat of modernism for the church was that, well, if we no longer live in a society that believes in the supernatural and the miracles, how do we demythologize the Bible so that we can still call ourselves Christians and we can still be relevant to the culture while not being laughed out of the room for believing in things that are completely irrational, like Noah's flood? 
So this anti-supernaturalism, the naturalism that led to Darwinism, is a part of what's going on at this time. The Scopes Monkey Trials in 1925, we're coming close on the 100-year anniversary of that, just two years away. So this book was published just two years before the infamous Scopes Monkey Trial. Now, if those are the tenets, the major tenets of modernism, that is, they are progressive because they have this belief in human goodness and human progress, and they are anti-supernatural, then you understand what threat this formed for the church in the 20th century. And modernism is destructive of society in many ways. And Machen does a great job of pointing that out. And I'd like to share with you his critique of modernism here before we get into the compromise with modernism that the church engaged in in the 20th century. And Machen says this in his introduction, his first chapter, the modern world represents in some respects an enormous improvement over the world in which our ancestors lived. So he's conceding that there has been amazing progress made in the area of science and industry, in the physical blessings that we enjoy, the standard of living, the wealth, all of that has been greatly improved from the 18th century to the 19th century in which he lived and into the 20th century. Now, he says this, but in other respects, it exhibits a lamentable decline. So while we are progressing in some ways, we're not progressing in all ways. And there's some ways in which society is getting worse, even as some parts of society are getting better. And it takes that discernment to be able to recognize that not everything that is changing is progress. Some things are changing for the worse. And so he said this, the improvement appears in the physical conditions of life, but in the spiritual realm, there is a corresponding loss. The loss is clearest, perhaps, in the realm of art. If you want to see how modernism makes life worse, then look at art before modernism and look at art after modernism. Look at the architecture of buildings that were built post-Reformation and look at the buildings that are built now in their modernist style. So ugly, so utilitarian, very much a loss of something important and vital to human nature. In fact, recently, Doug Wilson, he pointed out that modern art is the suicide note of the West. Think about that. Modern art, it's not what they killed themselves with, but it's the suicide note. It explains why they killed themselves. That's modern art. Now, he's not going to spend a lot of time on that, but he is going to warn us about the dangers of socialism and utilitarianism. And remember, this was written 100 years ago. This is before World War II. This is before the rise of Stalin. This is before the Nazis. And he's warning Western civilization about the dangers of modernism. Listen to what he says. The whole development of modern society has tended mightily toward the limitation of the realm of freedom for the individual man. That as this progressive mindset took hold, as this naturalistic mindset that was opposed to the idea of God's interference in the world, this anti-supernatural view of the world, took hold, Machen saw accurately that this was going to lead to a limitation of individual freedoms. He goes on after this line to say, this tendency is most clearly seen in socialism. And he goes on and warns about the dangers of a socialistic state. But notice this. But the same tendency exhibits itself today, even in those countries where the name of socialism is most abhorred. So, like our country back in the 20th century, we abhorred the name of socialism. Yet, Machen points out that many of the tendencies of limiting the freedom of the individual man were to be observed as modernism was taking over our nation, which abhorred socialism and yet exhibited many of the same tendencies even a hundred years ago. Okay? And this is what he says about it. When once the majority has determined that a certain regime is beneficial, that regime without further hesitation is forced ruthlessly upon the individual man. It never seems to occur to modern legislatures that although welfare is good, forced welfare may be bad. In other words, utilitarianism is being carried to its logical conclusions. In the interests of physical well-being, the great principles of liberty are being thrown ruthlessly to the winds. Now, we live 100 years later, and we've seen the contraction of the individual freedom of man go even further than Machen probably feared that it could go in that time period. But he already saw the principles at stake and those principles being put into place. 
that, yeah, welfare is good, but forced welfare may not be good. And so we have to think about even the things that we grew up with, that we just took for granted, that there were people in those times that were warning and saying, hey, this is against the principle of liberty, and we're going to lose our liberty if we continue to go in this direction. And he was right. I think we're seeing it more clearly now. Machen also applies this problem of modernism and the limitation of freedom, liberty for the individual, in the realm of education. He says this, The greatest happiness for the greatest number, it is assumed, can be defined only by the will of the majority. And therefore, anything unique in education must be avoided, and the choice of schools must be taken away from the individual parent and placed in the hands of the state. A hundred years later, school choice is still such an important and divisive issue in our nation. And he was warning about it back then. He talked about how in Nebraska, for example, this one is close to home, a law is now in force, back in 1923, in which no instruction in any school in the state, public or private, is to be given through the medium of a language other than English. And no language other than English is to be studied even as a language until the child has passed an examination before the county superintendent of education showing that the eighth grade has been passed. In other words, Machen says, no foreign language, apparently not even Latin or Greek, is to be studied until the child is too old to learn it well. And so there's good intentions, but they have unintended consequences. And people make laws and they try to force what they think is best for everybody on everybody, and they take away the individual freedom of man. That was a great threat of modernism, and we've seen it play out. He pointed out also that in Oregon in 1922, a law was passed that all children are required to attend the public schools. And he goes on and describes, when one considers, listen to this, sounds so contemporary, when one considers what the public schools of America in many places already are, their materialism, their discouragement of any sustained intellectual effort, their encouragement of the dangerous pseudoscientific fads of experimental psychology, one can only be appalled by the thought of a commonwealth in which there is no escape from such a soul-killing system. But the principle of such laws and their ultimate tendency are far worse than the immediate results. Did you catch that? The principle that is behind these laws and their ultimate tendency are far worse than the immediate results. They were things that were putting in place. And they're like, well, that's not so bad. Well, you know, maybe it's not the best, but it has good intentions. But he says, no, look at the principle. And when the principle is carried forth, then it's going to have more and more disastrous results. And so we have to think about the principles upon which our laws are being produced. I've shared this quote with a number of people, and I wanted to share it with you this morning. A public school system, if it means the providing of free education for those who desire it, is a noteworthy and beneficent achievement of modern times. But when once it becomes monopolistic... It is the most perfect instrument of tyranny which has yet been devised. And he explains. He says, Freedom of thought in the Middle Ages was combated by the Inquisition, but the modern method is far more effective. Place the lives of children in their most formative years, despite the convictions of their parents, under the intimate control of experts appointed by the state. Force them to attend schools where the highest aspirations of humanity are crushed out and where the mind is filled with the materialism of the day, and it is difficult to see how even the remnants of liberty can subsist. He testified before Congress against the establishment of the Department of Education, and I think he was right. If only Christians, more Christians, had listened to him a hundred years ago. You know, God gave Machen to the world a hundred years ago, and most people disregarded him. He was kicked out of his seminary, he had to go start a new seminary. He was kicked out of his denomination. He had to go start a new denomination. If only more Christians had listened to Machen and less Christians had listened to Fosdick, what could our nation be? How could liberty have been preserved? How could modernism have been combated? Listen to what he says about the threat of modernism to our civilization. He says this, The truth is that the materialistic paternalism of the present day isn't that a great description for our society yet today, 100 years later? Materialistic paternalism. The government is there to be your father and take care of your physical needs and to squelch any spiritual desires. This materialistic paternalism, if allowed to go unchecked, will rapidly make of America one huge main street. 
Is that what it feels like? We're one huge main street where spiritual adventure will be discouraged and democracy will be regarded as consisting in the reduction of all mankind to the proportions of the narrowest and least gifted of the citizens. How does that describe America today? Democracy is reducing all of mankind to the proportions of the narrowest and the least gifted of its citizens. And he has this prayer. God grant that there may come a reaction and that the great principles of Anglo-Saxon liberty may be rediscovered before it is too late. Modernism is also anti-family, as state and community take the place of the family, and that's why we have ministries like Focus on the Family rising up in the 20th century to combat this modernistic trend of reducing individual liberty and reducing the value of the family as the state becomes all-important. The paternalistic, materialistic state. Well, that is his warning in the introductory chapter. And I, I recommend, if you're not going to read the whole book, go online and read the first chapter of Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism, and you'll get more of what I have selected for you here this morning. But that's not the main thrust of the book. That's him interacting with the culture at large. But the main thrust of the book is Machen dealing with the theological liberalism that had crept into the church and had subverted the very Christianity that it claimed to be. And so in chapters 2 through 7 of the book, Machen sets out this goal. We shall be interested in showing that despite the liberal use of traditional phraseology, modern liberalism not only is a different religion from Christianity, but belongs in a totally different class of religions. It has nothing to do with Christianity, even though they pretend to be Christian. Now, can he prove such an astounding claim? He further states his claim like this. Our principal concern just now is to show that the liberal attempt at reconciling Christianity with modern science, and what he means by that is modernism, has really relinquished everything distinctive of Christianity. So that what remains is in essentials only that same indefinite type of religious aspiration which was in the world before Christianity came upon the scene. That when you try to make Christianity fit with modernism, this belief in human goodness, this unfettered belief in the ability of mankind to progress, this belief that the physical world is really all that there is and that God does not interact with this world, what you're left with as a Christian religion is really just ancient paganism. It's really just humanism parading itself as Christianity. Can he prove that claim? Well, he's going to do so by taking us through this comparison and contrast, really all contrast, between theological liberalism and Christianity. And he's going to do so with these six doctrines. First, the very idea of doctrine itself. Then, the doctrine, the truth that the Bible teaches about God, his character and nature, and man. Very essential, very foundational. What their view of authority is and their view of the Bible. Who they think Christ is, their view of Christ, and therefore, the gospel, salvation. And then finally, the church. These would be the most important doctrines in any systematic theology of Christianity. And you're going to find that the liberal view has nothing in common with the Christian view. And so though they call themselves Christians, they are not. That is what he's going to set out to prove. Let me ask you, what is Christianity? Who gets to define what Christianity is? Well, my answer to that would be that Reformation Christianity is true Christianity because it is genuine Christianity. What do I mean by genuine? Well, the root word genuine, it comes from a word that has to do with your genes. And the genes determine who you are. It's the most foundational building blocks of who you are. And if you go back and you look at the genetics of Christianity, you're going back to the apostles. You're going back to the New Testament. You're going back to the life and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ as recorded by the apostles and prophets in the New Testament. And that's exactly what Reformation Christianity set out to do. The authority of Scripture, sola scriptura, and the gospel that the apostles preached, summarized by sola fide, sola gratia, and solus Christus, as the reformers unpacked and explained the doctrine of the apostles. And that genuine Christianity, that original Christianity, that was rediscovered, so to speak, in the process of the Reformation, stood in contrast to the Christianity of the traditions of the church, 
the traditions of the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Church, the state churches that they were. And so that's what my and also Machen's proposal is as to what is true Christianity. It's what the scriptures say. That's true Christianity. It's what the apostles wrote. That is true Christianity. And so you measure whether or not something is Christian by whether or not it accords with what is in this book. As Machen explores the doctrinal differences between the theological liberals and the biblical, original, genuine Christianity, he demonstrates for us very clearly that these are different religions. Let's start with number one, that is doctrine itself. You see, theological liberalism has a distaste, if not an outright hatred, for doctrine. That's part of why they are called liberals, is that they want to have freedom from all the constraints of the past. They don't want their religion to be determined by Calvin. They don't want their religion to be determined by Luther. They don't want their religion to be determined by Paul. They don't want their religion to be determined by Peter. But they propose that their Christianity is actually rooted in the very teachings of Jesus Christ himself and that therefore their religion is more original than any other religion because they're free from these human traditions and they've got back to the historical Jesus. And therefore, they despise the doctrines that have all been added on to the teachings of Jesus because they see Jesus as just an ethical teacher who taught the golden rule. And that becomes the essence of their version of Christianity. However, Christianity is a religion that is rooted in history and there is no difference between the religion of Jesus Christ himself and the religion of his apostles and prophets that is recorded in the New Testament. And therefore, our love for doctrine is the love of everything that is taught in the New Testament. Mason does a great job of pointing this out by looking at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, where it says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Mason says this, Christ died... That is history. Christ died for our sins. That is doctrine. So the history of what God has done in history is wedded to the doctrine of what God is teaching through that history, through that revelation of himself in time and space. And so Christianity is unique among all religions in the world in that it is not merely the thoughts or experiences of religious people that are set down as an example for other people to follow, but it's an actual revelation of the God who created the world revealing himself in history through the greatest revelation of all, the incarnation of God in the flesh, dying on the cross according to the scriptures and being raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, so that doctrine and history are what determine the content of Christianity. And that if you reject the doctrine of Christianity, you are rejecting Christianity. Now, I told you earlier that the theological liberals try to boil Christianity down to the golden rule. They say, Jesus taught us to love our neighbor as ourself, and that if you do that, then you are a Christian. Well, let me explain, through Machen's book, why the golden rule is not the essence of Christianity, though it is of great value in Christian ethics. You see, Christianity, as defined by the apostles of Christ, is not a mere moralism. It's not just this high ethical standard that if you try to live up to, then you're a Christian. The golden rule existed outside of Christianity in the ancient world. You could be a pagan philosopher and believe in the golden rule and live according to the golden rule. That doesn't make you a Christian. You see, the ethical standard that Jesus laid forth, that the Old Testament also taught, is so high that it is unattainable for sinful humanity. That if we do not have God at work in our lives, supernaturally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we cannot carry out the high ethical teaching of Christ's law or Moses' law. And that's why this doctrine of the New Testament is you must be born again. That until you come to know God through faith in Jesus Christ, you do not have the ability to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you think you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you are self-deceived. Their disregard for doctrine and trying to boil it down to just a way of life Machen deals with this very skillfully in chapter 2 on doctrine. He refutes their assertion that Christianity is not doctrine, but a life. You know what? That sounds very contemporary as well. You go to a lot of evangelical churches today, and they don't like doctrine. 
They don't want doctrine in the pulpit. They don't want it preached. They don't want long discussions about Calvinism and Arminianism or premillennialism and postmillennialism. Just tell us something that's relevant to our life. Christianity is, is our life. It's not all this doctrine. Well, that was the same thing that he was battling back then. It's back in the church again. He, in this chapter, speaks strongly against premillennialists. Now, I am a premillennialist. So like I said, while Machen's a hero of mine, he wouldn't have liked me very much as a premillennialist. But he brings up the strong differences that he has with premillennialism to point out that even though he thinks that doctrine is so dangerous, it's still within the same religion. That premillennialists are Christians, just like amillennialists are Christians, and postmillennialists are Christians, but that these theological liberals, they're not even a part of the same religion. This is not an in-house debate like premillennialism and postmillennialism. This is an out-of-house debate between what is not Christianity and what is Christianity. So let's go on then to the second point in this book, and that is the doctrine of God and the doctrine of man. Now, the premier doctrine of modernist theologians, the premier idea in their doctrine of God is that God is the father of all mankind, the universal fatherhood of God. We're all God's children. God cares for us all. He's created us all, so in one sense, he's the father of all mankind. And while it's true that God has created all and he cares for all, and in certain passages it does give the idea that in one sense he is a father of all, yet the teaching of the New Testament, the emphasis of the New Testament, is squarely on the fact that we as sinners are destined to be separated from God and cast out from his heaven into eternal punishment unless we experience a new life, a reconciliation to God, a miracle of God's work in our life that makes us his children in a special and most important way. And so the universal fatherhood of God was used by the liberal theologians to try to make everybody think everyone's going to heaven. You've been to some of the mainline churches that went liberal in the 20th century to some of their funerals? It doesn't matter who they're doing the funeral for, they're in heaven. They all went to heaven because we're all God's children. And so Machen does a great job of showing that this doctrine of the universal fatherhood of God is not true but that the scripture emphasizes what we have in John chapter 1, verse 12, that you have to receive Christ. You have to believe in his name. And then you get the right to become a child of God and you get a place in God's household. But for those who do not believe, for those who do not receive him, you'll be cast out into the outer darkness. So just on the very nature of God himself, there's this foundational important difference in the liberal conception of God and in the biblical conception of God. And then when it comes to the concept of man, you see at the root of the modern liberal movement, Machen said, is the loss of the consciousness of sin. Now there's two important parts of the doctrine of man in scripture. Number one is that we are created in the image of God and therefore it is wrong to murder and that to kill another person is to strike out the image of God because of the dignity and the value and the worth of mankind created in the image of God. But the flip side of that doctrine is is that sin has ruined the image of God within us and has twisted and distorted it so that unless we are redeemed, we will be forever lost and that we are worthy of God's judgment. And the liberal movement lost that side of it. They held on to the dignity of man created in the image of God, but they lost the consciousness of sin because modernism believed in human goodness. And so when modernism was brought into the church, the consciousness of sin was gone and was replaced with the idea that people are really good by nature. You go talk to most Christians today and you ask them, are, are people good or are people evil? Most people. Well, most people are good. There's a few people out there that are evil, but most are good. And so you see that liberalism took over much of Christianity in the 20th century and it's happening again. Same story. Now you go to the evangelical churches, the one that did not fall away in the 20th century but stood strong in the 20th century. Now those churches are also following in the same line. God loves everyone. God's the father of everyone. We're not going to emphasize sin. We're not going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about how much God loves you and has a great purpose for your life. That is the modernist tendency still present now in the evangelical church so-called. So, if they're different on God and man, they're also going to be different on this next important point, the doctrine of the Bible itself. What is our authority Machen does a great job of defending against the attacks on the inerrancy of Scripture. The inerrancy of Scripture was the most important battleground probably in Christianity in the 20th century. 
the books that were written on inerrancy, the conferences that were hosted on inerrancy, the doctrinal statements that were created on inerrancy were done by the men who were faithfully standing on the word of God in the 20th century. But what did the liberals say about inerrancy? They said, oh, that's not in the Bible. That's a doctrine that the fundamentalists just made up in the 19th century. We don't have to believe that in order to be Christians. That's not even in the Bible. But if your Bible is not inerrant, then how do you know which parts of your Bible to believe and which parts of your Bible not to believe? Well, there you're dependent upon the expert. And the expert will tell you, well, this part of the Bible is true. This part of the Bible is in error. And therefore, you have no authority except the expert. And the expert replaces the Bible. Also, replacing the Bible's authority is their own personal experiences. So you listen to the experts and you listen to your own personal experiences instead of submitting yourself to the authority of God's Word. They say, we're going back to the teachings of Christ but they don't actually hold to Christ's authority because Christ taught the authority of Scripture. And so if you're going to hold to the authority of Christ, then you would teach the authority of Scripture, which they don't. The modernist Christian, the modernist pastor, he selects the sayings of Christ that he finds acceptable. So who's the real authority? Christ or the one who is selecting which things he said are authoritative? And their selection is based upon their own experiences, which is pretty much pragmatism, and it's ever-changeable. And so, Machen says, it is no wonder then that liberalism is totally different from Christianity, for the foundation is different. Christianity is founded upon the Bible. It bases upon the Bible both its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. Well said. You know, in the 20th century, among the liberal churches, there was this search for the historical Jesus. You clear away all the tradition, clear away all that has accreted to Christ and get back to who he really was. And they were searching for the historical Jesus. And at the end of their search, the historical Jesus looked a lot like a 20th century liberal theologian. Hmm, coincidence. Well, let's look at what they teach about Christ. Machen observes, rightly, that having gotten rid of the holiness of God and the doctrine of the sinfulness of man... Therefore, Christ is only needed as an example, a moral teacher, and not as a savior. And so what Machen does in his chapter on Christ is he defends the truth that Jesus is not just an example of faith, but he is the object of our faith, our faith in his person, that he is the unique son of God, our faith in his work, that he died on the cross according to the scriptures for our sins. That is the object of our faith. Christ is the object of our faith. And he says this in chapter 5, Liberalism regards him as an example and guide. Christianity regards him as a savior. Liberalism makes him an example for faith. Christianity, the object of faith. There's a profound difference here. That's very important that we recognize that. And one other thing he said in this chapter that I just have to repeat because it's so insightful When a liberal theologian says he believes in the deity of Christ, it's not because he holds Christ in such high regard. It's because he holds God in such low regard. The liberal theologian thinks that God is in all of us and that Christ just manifested it better or in a more superior way than anyone else had ever done before. And so they bring God down so low in their estimation that they can agree with a doctrinal statement that says that Christian is God because they believe we're all kind of God. Number five, it's no wonder that their doctrine of salvation, that is the gospel, is different when you have a different Christ, a different authority, a different view of man, and a different view of God, right? No wonder that this would be then very different. Here's a quote from his chapter on salvation. Liberalism finds salvation, so far it is willing to speak at all of salvation, in man. Man is the source of his salvation. Christianity finds it in an act of God. Very important difference there. It's a totally different view of salvation. They are contrary. They're not reconcilable. And so when you think about the doctrine of salvation, what Machen does is then he'll walk through the key aspects of the doctrine. Atonement, regeneration, justification, sanctification, and he will show how in every point the theological liberals have a contrary position that is not Christian. For example, in the atonement, The New Testament teaches that Jesus Christ died for our sins 
according to the scriptures. The reason he died was as a vicarious sacrifice. That is, Christ took our place on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. That's called the penal view of the atonement, penal substitutionary atonement. That is not what liberalism teaches. Now, years ago, there was a book called The Shack that became very popular among Christians, one of the most popular books of the 21st century. And I read The Shack, and I was a new pastor here, and I was appalled by the doctrine in that book. It had a different view of sin, it had a different view of God, it had a different view of man, it had a different view of the atonement. It was liberal. And Christians who were supposed to be in churches that were evangelical did not recognize it. And they believed the same things. And they loved it. And they went along with it. And even if they were willing to criticize some parts of it, they only did so very lightly and said, well, there's still a lot of good things in this book and I think you can get a lot of good out of it. If I gave you a a cup full of milk with some cyanide mixed into it, and I said, there's a lot of good things here in this, you should drink it. There's a few things that I don't agree with. You might want to be discerning. But go ahead and drink it. That's what the pastors are doing in the EFCA. I went to an EFCA Midwest District Conference. A question about the shack was brought up, and that's exactly what the speaker said. Some things I don't agree with, but a lot of good in the book. The church in the 21st century has fallen prey to the same mistakes the church in the 20th century did. We're repeating it. That's why this book is so important. A hundred years later, we need to hear what Machen said and wake up so we don't repeat the same mistake. Satan is playing us. Now, when it comes to the doctrine of regeneration, he pointed out Galatians 2.20. Regeneration is a supernatural work of God. Now, if you're a modernist, you're trying to get rid of all the supernatural elements of Christianity. Sweep those under the rug and say, we can still be Christians. We can still have our churches. We can still have our seminaries. We can still have our chair of theology and be called pastor and have a Christian name. And we don't have to believe all this stuff. Well, therefore, regeneration also gets swept out together with all the other supernatural acts of God. You see, the liberal theologian doesn't really believe that mankind is dead in trespasses and sins, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, but that really we're just sick and we just need a good example and some good preaching and then we can live the life that God wants us to live. But Paul says, no, we need an entirely new heart, an entirely new life, a miracle of God to bring life out of death. And so a verse that you should all memorize if you haven't already, Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, this is a supernatural work of God. We don't find it in ourselves, but instead salvation is a work of God, regeneration, the Holy Spirit. Justification is another doctrine where they are at odds with the biblical faith. The biblical faith is you are justified by faith, and Machen calls this the center of Christianity. He says Galatians became the Magna Carta of the Reformation, but liberalism has returned to the pre-Reformation view of Galatians. And you know what? The evangelical church in the 21st century has done it again. The same mistake they made 100 years ago, pastors all around our nation are making today. And they are adopting the new perspective on Paul. You can go to evangelical seminaries and you send your kid off to a seminary, you think they're going to be taught the Bible. They are taught the pre-Reformation view on Galatians. They're giving up everything that was won. Machen says the whole achievement of the Reformation has been given up and there has been a return to the religion of the Middle Ages. And that's what's happening in evangelicalism today. And then you come to the doctrine of sanctification. And he spends a lot of time taking the social gospel to task. We won't go into that. But then he also talks a lot about missions. Keep your eye on missions. That's where things tend to go bad first. When missions become more absorbed with social issues and improving the lives of people around the world than about saving souls for eternity, you know something has gone wrong. Machen is very wise. He talks about how Christianity will bring better social conditions. But if you evangelize for the sake of improving social conditions, you are not an evangelist. 
This is an outgrowth, this is a secondary blessing of the true blessing of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That one work that we alone can do in the world. And that if we don't do it, it won't get done. Anybody can dig a well. It's good to dig a well. Anybody can give chickens. It's good to have chickens. But only a Christian can give the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and see someone born again and receive life eternal and be rescued from the very fires of eternal hell. That's our mission. They were losing it. And we're losing it. I want to read this quote. A terrible crisis unquestionably has arisen in the church. In the ministry of evangelical churches, I could say this today, exact same words, are to be found hosts of those who reject the gospel of Christ. By the equivocal use of traditional phrases, they still talk like a Christian, but they mean something different. By the representation of differences of opinion as though they were only differences about the interpretation of the Bible. Entrance into the church was secured for those who are hostile to the very foundations of the faith. It hasn't changed. It's come full circle among the evangelical churches. Machen does a good job of pointing out how the liberal theologians in his time were dishonest. And there's so many seminary professors signing doctrinal statements out there that they do not believe in. And they are liars. And they do not belong in the Christian ministry. If you don't believe it, have the courage to say it and not sign it and go start your own school. Stop taking over other people's things by being a liar. They're doing it again. Well, when it comes down to it, when you look at these six doctrines and how the liberalism is completely opposed to biblical Christianity, R.C. Sproul summed it up all very well. He said, liberal theology really boils down to one word unbelief. That's not how they present themselves, but that's what it is. It's people who have grown up in church, people who have been the sons of pastors, sons of seminary professors, who all their friends are in this circle, their hope for advancement in the world is in the church, but they don't believe it. So what do you do? You change it. You adapt it. You use the terminology, but you mean something different. You're chameleon. You fit in until you have enough people around you that also don't believe it, and it's yours. So, what are we supposed to do? What are the applications? Three that I want to keep in front of you this morning. Number one, contend for the faith. Don't be afraid to be called narrow-minded. They called them narrow-minded in the 20th century. Don't be afraid to be called unscientific. They called him unscientific in the 20th century. Don't be afraid of losing the next generation. Oh, we've got to adapt or the young people won't come to church. We'll lose the young people. That's what they said in the 20th century. Listen to what Machen told us to do. Well, the reason why we're supposed to fight. In the sphere of religion, as in other spheres, the things about which men are agreed are apt to be the things that are least worth holding. The really important things are the things about which men will fight. If it's important, you'll fight for it. Is the doctrine of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it important to you? Is it really important to you? Will you fight for it? Will you lose friends over it? Will you lose position? You get fired from your seminary, get kicked out of your church? How important is it to you? It was important to Machen. He fought for it. And we remember him. And his book has aged well. And he's been shown to be right. You know, liberalism had its day in the 20th century. For the 30 years or so after Machen wrote this book, liberalism grew, it increased, they had success, they looked like they were doing great. Let's take the PCUSA as an example. You know, the PCUSA, it reached its height in membership in 1990. It took a long time to get to its, its peak but what happened since 1990 in the liberal denomination that we left, the PCUSA? They've lost almost 70% of their membership in the last 30 years. They have 638 less churches today than they had six years ago because it's dead. It's been dead for a while and people are finally just realizing it. But our church, 
is not dead. It's not closed. Because that pastor and that congregation, a hundred years ago, refused to go along with the apostasy. And a hundred years from now, may people look back and there's still a church preaching the word of God in Firth because you were not willing to go along with the apostasy. Number two, invest in Christian education. If only Christians had listened to Machen a hundred years ago, how things could be different. But we've allowed the secularists, the postmodernists, the Marxists to disciple our children for two decades in their most formative years, send them off to college to listen to the Marxists. They go to a worship service on Sunday that is often very light on doctrinal content. And so it's no wonder that people who grow up in Christian families have a crisis of faith around ethical and intellectual issues. Invest in truly Christian education and do your research. A lot of the Christian schools out there are modernist schools. They're postmodernist schools. They use the words, they present themselves as Christians, but they really don't believe. Number three, read the book. Or at least the introduction. It's free online. It's 100 years old. It's out of copyright. You can listen to the audio book. You can read the PDF. You can download it however you like. But read the book. And I'll give you the closing words of the book as our closing words this morning. It's an encouragement. It shows you where the heart of Machen really was. And that's where we are right now. He says this. Is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife, and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross? If there be such a place, then that is the house of God, and that the gate of heaven. And it says this, from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. That's where we are. The house of God, the gate of heaven. This is our life. Our faith is not to be compromised. And this is what is going to revive any soul in this world that wants righteousness.